Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant and we're glad you're here for Kentucky Newsmakers and hope you're enjoying the weekend. Later, Kentucky Youth Advocates is out with its kids count data that looks at how children in our state are doing in terms of equal opportunities and access to the tools to let them thrive. Terry Brooks will join us a little later. But first, we all know the challenges we face with workforce issues and getting Kentuckians qualified for all the job openings out there. Today, the man who oversees the state's colleges and universities joins us to talk about how higher education is stretching to meet the needs and remove barriers. They're part of a special emphasis going on right now called Govember. Did you know that Kentucky students leave an estimated $45 million in federal financial aid on the table every year? Dr. Aaron Thompson has his own inspiring story of how college lifted him from Appalachian poverty and set him on a path to becoming a professor, a college administrator, as well as an in-demand speaker, and now overseeing higher education in Kentucky. Welcome uh, this morning uh, to Dr. Thompson. We appreciate you being here. Well, Bill, always good to see you, my friend. <laughs> Just back from one of your speakings, yeah. by the way, right? <laughs> well, welcome. Uh, first off, uh, how are our colleges at this point uh, navigating uh, COVID and trying to refocus uh, on the future and reclaim some of that uh, ground that was lost? Well, Bill, you, obviously COVID had an effect on us, had an effect on everybody. You know, it had an effect on P-12, learning loss, had an effect on parents. Uh, many, you know, people being displaced from their jobs. In our colleges and universities, we had to focus on keeping our students safe and keeping our doors open and providing the educational needs that, that we promised that we would. We did well. As a matter of fact, most of our colleges and universities have now got most of their folks vaccinated. We've got students in the, you know, back on campus. The enrollments are down, but not down as much as we thought it would be. But the item more than anything else, we met as presidents constantly talking about how we think about innovation now, not waiting to figure out exactly what COVID did to us, but what we would do in the process of COVID. And I feel proud that we did that. Is it possible that this group of college students who, uh, because of all they faced and all the innovations they had to go with on the fly, are now particularly well equipped to, to deal with a sudden change in the future? Now, we always talk about the new normal. Uh, what we're figuring out, there's a new normal. You know, as much as we can try to go back to what it was, we know COVID lives with us. We know that there's also a greater chance that we have a better highlighted sense that there could be something else that happens like COVID. So the idea that college students are taking much more of an opportunity to, to think about what do I need to do to keep myself safe and others safe and really not thinking of themselves possibly as invincible as they once did. As they once did. And if it's not, in this case, disease, I mean, the grid, all kinds of issues that potentially could come up fast. Uh, they may be well equipped to deal with that now or go to campus uh, with uh, uh, an extra uh, set of thoughts. Yes, and we are too, to be honest with you. I mean, we, at our colleges and universities are more equipped. Obviously, this was not something that we had fully prepared for it, no matter what we say. But after going through it, we really built, I think, the human 
knowledge and infrastructure to deal with issues like this if they pop up again. You know, for all the positives, uh, it has not been easy. Uh, we know that. And we know that many students have emotional needs uh, that uh, right now are unmet, uh, and campuses are scrambling and stretching to, to help uh, meet with them and address those things, right? Well, I so appreciate you bringing that up because we talk about the academic endeavor all the time with our higher education, but, you know, so much of what makes college students that person are those social emotional needs and what we knew is that we had some mental health rising issues fairly fast before COVID. COVID exacerbated that and I'm glad we tried to do all the things we could do with telehealth with web-based uh, mental health but bottom line this is a big issue on our campuses and we didn't have all the counselors and still don't to handle this. But this is one of those items that I think smacked us in the face fairly hard, as hard as anything else that COVID brought us. And we are uh, working hard to make sure that we build ourselves to that capacity. So you're seeing uh, colleges and universities add counseling centers and, 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 and hire more people in, the, in that regard? Leaps and bounds. And we use some of the dollars the governor gave us from the feds to actually help build that structure. But colleges and universities are using their dollars more uh, that they already had from general fund and other revenue to build its yes without a doubt we're expanding tremendously does it appear more jobs in the future are going to require uh, 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 either a diploma or a certification and continued lifelong learning as we face <laughs> yeah. this huge issue right now with uh, with workforce you know, if I could say anything, I would want people to hear this. For Kentucky, I mean, for Kentucky, we're high in poverty, you know that. But for us to get out of this, we're going to have to have a thriving economy. We can't have a thriving economy unless we have a very strong educated workforce. And we can't have that unless we have a strong higher ed system. We've known for a long time it's going to take that college credential. But we've been able to produce numbers from Kentucky to definitely show that you have to have now and a college credential is truly a workplace certificate or a four-year degree or a PhD so we know that we're going to have to have more and more in the future of work tells us you know technology demands that we do and so I know Kentucky has this goal that is set of 60 percent of Kentuckians having a college degree or certificate by 2030 uh, you have an event going on called Govember. You're trying to draw attention to this, uh, what you just pointed out, right? Uh, <clears throat> very much so. Trying to draw attention and give resources at the same time. This is what we know. We have about 50% of our high school seniors who graduate from high school going to college. We cannot build that economy I'm talking about with those numbers. But we have also a significant amount of people not filling out the FAFSA, free money, if you will, from the feds, then you can match and get some state money with that, not filling out the FAFSA. So affordability is an issue that is really here, that people may not be able to afford to go to college or may not know how. So Govember go uh, really is pushing both of those and offering resources because FAFSA is not, it's not an easy thing to fill out. So, you know, we all hear about the cost of, uh, of college degrees. Some students literally just don't believe they can afford college. They see the sticker price and they consider that to be a barrier. You're saying there is an awful lot of money that's being left on the table that could help students achieve their goal. 
There, there is, and we have to also be a little more transparent in what the costs really are, because they're not the sticker price. They're somewhere around 35 to 40 percent less than the sticker price, but still, there's ways to go to college that you can afford to pay for that. We even really have free college, community college, with many of our high demand programs with work ready scholarship in the state, but we're also leaving uh, federal Pell dollars on the table. Uh, we're leaving uh, some other dollars on the table and it's our low income students that are leaving it on the table. And these are the population groups, I mean all students, true enough, but those students that have historically been disenfranchised, first generation students, uh, many of those students believe they can't go to college and what that's telling us is that they don't know how or they may not have the resources to do it and that's what, what we're doing. What would you for. tell them as, as the man who oversees colleges and universities in Kentucky, what would you have them know about the doors of opportunity it would open if they do get that, uh, that degree or certificate? Well you know I'm going to come back to my life a little bit. I mean I'm a first generation high school student and college student. Father was illiterate, mother had an eighth grade education and now I'm the head of higher education for Kentucky. I mean, that happened because of education. That happened because of college. That happened because I figured out a way uh, to get to college and through college. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about generational change. We're talking about my kids only think about what college they're going to now, not if they're going to college. And it's not just about going to college, Bill. Once again, it comes back to the idea that you're going to have better health, you're going to have more sustainable income over a lifetime. You're, you just will have a higher quality of life. What is going on with this gender gap we have mm -hmm. right now? With uh, uh, Women are much more likely to go to college right now than men. And that's been the case for a while, actually. And <clears throat> I think there's a variety of things. I think one thing is that we found out when we talked to men, men believe that it's going to be there for them if they decide to do it. Or there's going to be a job there for them when they get out of high school. There is a belief, and a little bit of a false consciousness of a belief, I think, that that's going to be there. So uh, we're seeing that gap expand a little bit. And this is especially true for our men of color, to be honest with you. There's also this piece that I will tell you that it's important. COVID, I'll, I'll speak about women a little bit here also. During the COVID time, many women who had jobs had to move back home in cases to take care of their children. And so even though they went to college, we're going to see a wider disparity among unemployment for women that need to get back in the workforce. That college may have to help them to get skilled up to do so. But men, I'm going to tell you men that's out there, please understand that the only way you're going to get where you need to go, maybe not the only way, but the greatest likelihood of a way is to get that college certificate, diploma, or degree. What do you say to, to uh, some students out there who are on their own, uh, you know, or at least they feel that way, those who may uh, not have a traditional family uh, situation, uh, how do they reach out uh, to get the information they need and the support they need and the confidence they need to go on to college? Well, first of all, there's going to be someone in your community, whether it's at your schools or some uh, other nonprofit or maybe even at your church, that can hook you up with the local community college, one of our four-year systems. You can get on our website even, www.cpe.gov, I think, ky.gov. Uh, and we will tell you how, but there's information everywhere, but you have to seek it, and someone will know.
You know, we've seen the struggle to hire uh, by the businesses out there. Are colleges doing a better job, do you think, of aligning uh, what is being taught to the available jobs? You know, we hear thousands of jobs are unfilled in Kentucky. Uh, is that a matter of getting more participation in the workforce, or is it a matter of getting people skilled to handle those, uh, those opportunities? Both. Uh, but once again, what we know is that we have many jobs still left unfilled in Kentucky. And we can work with people to get those jobs filled through our community and technical colleges or through our four-year institutions. That's the connection. What we also know, though, and this is important, that we're going to have to think about this for the future. We're going to have to bring employers on the front end of this conversation with us to plan for the programs for 10 years from now right and not really build programs that were really good 10 years ago but how are we going to have to think about this this truly i think ends up being also a quality argument you know if employers and students themselves believe that they have that degree or certificate that actually are giving them something in the end and they know where they're going so advising is important but it's also important to start this early bill not just in college but we start looking at this in elementary middle school and really allow students to see all the possibilities. Now, I'm not talking about tracking toward a different direction, but allow them to see themselves in the future after college. So you would want to plant that college seed early and then maybe pick a direction uh, not much later than that, right? Or they, they, they go to college and, and chew up uh, time and money trying to decide, right? It's an affordability issue. Now, I don't argue they have to pick what degree or what job they want but they have to argue that they listen this is what I'm good at or what I think I'm good at I like to explore it so it is about exploration but it's also about direction it is about us doing our job to help them to know here's all the paths you can go our student right to know uh, website really points this out this is the job you can get with this degree or certificate. This is how much this job will pay. This is what the average amount of money you borrow to go or the average cost of it at whatever institution you want to go to. So I think it is giving them all the information they need and then helping them, advising them to know how to use that information. There is a virtual parent night coming up this Wednesday, November 17th. Uh, what will parents be able to find out there? Well, they're going to find out a lot. You know, what all the opportunities are in Kentucky uh, for schools, uh, colleges. They're going to find out how to pay for it, how to help fill out, will help you fill out the FAFSA. And I want to be clear, when we're talking about parents here, it could be people that's not biologically connected yes. with you, but someone who supports you. So that's this Wednesday, I think, at 7 o'clock uh, and you can find this on the Kia website or on CPE's website uh, to sign up for it but we, we think this is going to be a biggie. We're working really hard with our Gear Up Kentucky staff and Kia and our, our staff at CPE to make sure that we do all we can do uh, to provide that support. You have served as Senate's interim president at Kentucky State University. You know the financial issues they are facing right now. Obviously you are monitoring that closely. Do you see a viable path forward for KSU? Uh, you know, I really do. Uh, and I appreciate the governor and the legislature talking with us about it and offering their help and we are asking for it. It's going to take about 23 million to share up the finances for this fiscal year even though we'll probably have a structural deficit next year. But we also need to not just think about how we get back to square one. 
We need to think about how the institution is going to thrive. We have to build new innovative programs for the future. We're going to have to look at other pipelines and pathways for students. We're going to have to be able to build that Kentucky State that can be viable as a HBCU for the next 135 years. A few seconds left. You will be pushing the legislature for more funding for higher ed. Yes. Right? We'll be pushing more. We're doubling down uh, on performance funding. We're doubling down on asset preservation. We're going for bucks for brains this time. There's some money in the legislature. Our argument is we are an investment. We give you a 62% return on your money. This is not about whether we've been cut in the past. This is about how you want to build for the future. Dr. Aaron Thompson, thanks for coming Thank by. You, sir. We always appreciate it from the Kentucky Council on Post-Secondary Education. And stay with us in just a moment. We're going to hear from Terry Brooks about Kids Count. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. We're glad you're here. The 2021 Kentucky Kids Count data is out from Kentucky Youth Advocates. It shows where kids are doing well and where there are some big challenges to get to a level playing field. Terry Brooks is executive director and he's joining us now to talk about that report. Thank you very much for being with us. Hey, Bill, thanks for uh, spotlighting Kentucky's kids today. Uh, this is a, an overall picture, uh, but what does the, the 2021 Kentucky Kids Count uh, reveal to us? You know, Bill, uh, we could talk about a lot of data points, uh, but if, if I were to take away one lesson, uh, one sort of cerebral itch, uh, it is that, uh, that while on many fronts, Kentucky's kids are doing better, and that's an important uh, that's an important issue to celebrate. We, as a state, still really, in many ways, have two different childhood experiences, because there are groups of young people who experience disparities that make their life tough. And and the thing that will not be news to you, but it's important to reiterate, is what this data clearly shows is that oddly. Kids in Kentucky's most rural areas and kids in Kentucky's most urban areas have deep connections in what challenges they face. The, the best example I can give you is that the overall trend line for childhood poverty in Kentucky is good news. We have uh, fewer kids living in poverty today than we've had the last several years, and, and we need to absolutely celebrate that. Yet, I will tell you that in the, the poorest areas of southeastern Kentucky, uh, the poverty rate is identical to the poverty rates among kids of color in both Fayette and Jefferson County. Whereas we as a state have about one in five kids living in poverty in, uh, again, kids of color in Jefferson and Fayette and those southeast Kentuckys, the childhood poverty rate uh, is is above 40%. So it's an odd connection yeah. between those rural kids and urban kids. And uh, I feel like that invites our General Assembly to look at common ground solutions. Do you think there there is a lot of common ground in, in how uh, the, it, it comes to be that there is a, oh, such a similarity? Absolutely. Uh, in that area alone, and, and the same is true whether it's around uh, foster care or uh, health conditions, but, but focusing on the economic well-being uh, notion, uh, just imagine 
if the General Assembly decided to take action to curb predatory lending, because that's an issue in rural Kentucky and in urban Fayette County. Uh, or imagine if the General Assembly looked at some, again, common ground uh, tax reform ideas, uh, a child credit or an earned income tax credit at the state level. Uh, those kind of measures, which are very bipartisan, they're not Republican or Democratic, uh, they would have an immediate impact upon our poorest families, whether that's in Eastern Kentucky or Lexington or Louisville, uh, they would help local economies and ironically actually uh, help the state budget. So what we're talking about are ideas like that that are not urban versus rural, win-lose, they're not gonna bust the budget. Uh, they're ideas that if we could move forward, uh, we would begin to mitigate the disparities of race and of zip code that have long uh, affected and afflicted uh, our commonwealth. Terry, let me ask this. You also, and you mentioned this in a glancing way, but you looked at housing costs and now the high cost of rentals, which is uh, such a burden to many families. Uh, is that something that can be addressed on the government level? Uh, or how do you get at that in, in terms of making housing affordable? Great question, and I'm gonna draw a parallel, uh, Bill. Uh, during the pandemic, one of the things that impressed me was how a variety of folks in Frankfurt uh, looked at food insecurity. Uh, the governor, uh, agriculture commissioner quarrels, leadership in the General Assembly. I am telling you, uh, Kentucky applied creative, imaginative ways to address kids and families not having food to eat. And, and again, uh, I love when we find common ground. We need to apply that same vigor and imagination when it comes to housing. Uh, again, we have unprecedented federal support uh, to make that happen. So it's not one of those situations where we're limited by dollars and cents. Instead, we're limited by uh, how we allocate to some degree, local zoning restrictions. So absolutely, and, and you just nailed it, that is an issue that there's real vulnerability, especially in urban areas. Yeah. And uh, that means local leaders and state leaders could come together and apply that same creative touch that they did for food insecurity to housing insecurity. Let me ask you about this. Your, your study also shows uh, black parents are incarcerated at a substantially higher rate than whites. Uh, do you advocate for you know alternative sentencing in cases of nonviolent yeah. offenders? Sure. We know that uh, we know that when a, a a mom or a dad is incarcerated, that is a shared sentence because the impact on those little boys and little girls is profound. Uh, what we know, especially on the, the mom side, maternal incarceration, that, uh, that so many of those moms are, are being incarcerated for low threshold violations. Uh, again, what, what I'm encouraged by is that majority leadership historically, uh, the Whitney Westerfields of the world, as well as minority leadership in both the House and Senate, uh, there, there is some really good common ground agreement 
on moving ahead with criminal justice reform. And so I actually look at that criminal justice sector with some encouragement as we're going into that 2022 session. I think we all know that we've got to protect public safety, but we also have to think about unintended consequences for, uh, for sentencing uh, that, as you said, invite alternative, creative uh, alternatives. KYYouth.org is where folks can find more information about uh, your priorities. Have just a few seconds left. Kentucky's economy is taking off. You're talking about uh, the danger of really widening the gap of the haves and have-nots. So the legislature will be hearing from you in a few weeks, I gather. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm one of those folks who believe that the potential for the Bashir administration and majority leadership in the House and Senate in this particular area is filled with potential. So I'm actually looking forward to the 22 session with hope and optimism when it comes to Kentucky's most vulnerable kids. Terry Brooks, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it very much. And thank you, Bill. Stay with us. We'll be back on Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. Pain at the pump and the thermostat. Over the last year, roughly 30% of U.S. households have had to slash expenses to pay energy bills. That's according to a Census Bureau survey. And experts warn Americans' pockets could take a bigger hit. Our chief national political analyst, Greta Van Susteren, explains. Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here is your full court fast break. Supply chain woes ongoing and inflation rising. In October, the Consumer Price Index, 6.2% higher than a year ago. That's the steepest spike in three decades. And this impacts energy costs. Natural gas and crude oil prices have both doubled since this time last year. And with demand outweighing supply, that won't change soon. Experts estimate since mid-2020, global crude oil consumption has exceeded production, and OPEC is resisting President Biden's calls to boost production. Now the president weighing other options, looking to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. The SBR is the world's largest supply of emergency crude oil. Authorized storage capacity, 714 million barrels. The oil is owned by the federal government and stored underground along the Gulf of Mexico. It can be sent out to nearly half the nation's oil refineries using a network of pipelines and barges. But any oil taken from the reserve must eventually be replaced. We will have to wait and see if the president taps into the reserve. In the meantime, his administration distributing roughly $3.4 billion to help Americans pay utility bills. The funds come from the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program. The money will help more than 5 million households. Want more Full Court Press? Tune in Sundays. We bring politics home, covering the national stories that impact you. And Full Court Press is coming up at 11.30 here on WKYT. Well, that's Kentucky Newsmakers. Thank you for joining us. I'll see you this week on WKYT News. Make it a good week ahead.